afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 117 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Amon Woman. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Hannah Flint. This week, Hannah and I grab our fedoras and whips to chat to James Mangold and Mad Mickelson, director and star of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. That will not be the last time you hear that theme tune hummed in the course of this episode. That is my prediction. Uh, We also review the film and decide whether it belongs in the museum. Plus, You didn't do it like he says it, where he's like, it belongs in a museum. Do you, want, do, you, do you want to do it again? You got to do, do it all grouchy. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> this is all staying in. While we review the film <laughs> and decide whether it belongs in a museum. Harrison? Better? Hello? <laughs> is that you? Harrison Ford is on this week's podcast. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> plus, we'll be whispering not so carelessly about Wham! The new Netflix documentary about the 80s band. Plus... In our hot take, we get into a few Dial of Destiny spoilers and talk about how and when Hollywood should be bringing back fan favors. But before all of that, I'm going to give a virtual high five to Khalees Lockbury. I'm going to give a virtual high five to Hannah Flint because we were well represented at the London Action Festival this past weekend. We were all on stage doing our thing. Hannah was speaking to Nia DaCosta. Clarice was talking to Martin Campbell about Zorro. Uh, and I uh, chatted to uh, a few Game of Thrones people, including Kit Harrington and also Natalie Holt, uh, composer of Loki and Obi-Wan. As an, and it was a lot of fun. Did you guys have fun? Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed my panel. Yeah, it was fun. Well, I mean, it was just me chatting to Nia DaCosta in like a old lecture hall. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I like Nia. She's great and she's very candid. One might, one might say too candid. <laughs> so kind of glad they're... I think Marvel might be happy that there weren't people there who would report on it. Yeah. How about your panel, Chris? You know that I love the Mask of Zorro, so I... I I'm, you I'm, didn't I'm, say I'm... anything about Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so nice to... I, I don't think I saw it at the cinema when it came out. I think we rented it, so I'd mm. never really seen it on the big screen. So I was really fine. And, mm. oh my God... Antonio Banderas and Catherine Cedar Jones oh, yeah. are so sexy together. <laughs> this is very true. Yeah. It's so That's funny with Catherine Cedar Jones because, like, she is pure white woman, <laughs> and yet she's a spicy white. <laughs> she's she's like I think the thing is I was check- checking I was like where's the Zeta come from? It's like is that like a thing? It's like oh no, they just like the name. So it's just like so it's like it's not even like like, like a pass down or anything like. She's a Welsh woman who just happens to like look Latina, and she she's great in this. I also think Antonio Banderas he's he's just got chemistry with every single person he's ever been on screen with. Like even mm. in Indiana Jones, there's a chemistry there between him and Harrison. Yeah, and Martin Campbell did say that Antonio is one of the greatest swordsmen on film. I know that he did a lot of work uh, on that film to get that good so that he could do yeah no but also a natural talent apparently okay he's just good at everything did you ask about a third zorro film yeah he said absolutely not no (laughs) but he's i mean for him doing one um but i'm sure 
someone will be revisiting this uh, property because they're... And let's hope oh. Antonio Banderas is not in charge of casting. Oh my gosh. Didn't Tom he say Holland. Tom Holland? Good yes. <laughs> but I think that's because he was being interviewed for Uncharted. You know, it's one of those things where it's like you look around the room and you're like, uh, Tom Holland. <laughs> he was probably looking at Tom Holland when he or, said that. If you're Harrison Ford in my interview and he's like, you, you don't have to pick the person next to you to go with, and it's good. Phoebe Waller Bridge. That's great. The question was, and it's for my MTV, and my interview interviews are very different to the Fade to Black interview that we've got on. But mm. with that, it was like, if you could use the Dial of Destiny, where would you go? When, who would you bring with you? And uh, yeah, it was quite funny. You can see that interview on YouTube if you want to. Uh, and Mads is there as well. Uh, Hannah, you are going to be back on stage in the very near future. Is that right? Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. It took you a while to get there. <laughs> because I'm doing something tonight. We're recording on a Friday, but I'm also doing something. on. So actually tonight I'm hosting a premiere for Isabelle Huppert's latest film, which cool. is cool. Um, but on Monday, it's the first film club with Ben Wheatley and Julie Jackman. Ben Wheatley's going to be there screening his directorial debut down terrace uh which is like a very gnarly brighton based family organized crime kind of gangster film very violent like get into his like weird origins <laughs> of filmmaking and we've got julie jackman who is a bath with her bath funded short film called the riley sisters was also kind of like seaside set family drama crime involved because I'm a great programmer. <laughs> but anyway, so the Ritzy, there's still tickets left. I think there's about 25 tickets left. Hopefully by Sunday, there'll only be a few. But if you're about on Monday night at the Ritzy uh, from 7.15, well, start film starts at 7.15, Q&A, get a free drink with a ticket. You might get a free membership to Pritchard House for a year if you're a lucky ticket holder. So yeah, come on down. I'll be there. I'll be there. Isn't it I'll be ready? I'll yes. be ready. I'll be ready. It's called remixing, Hannah. Okay. That's what yeah. I was doing. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I will be there. Looking forward to that night. Should be good because I haven't seen either of those films. Uh, so yeah, there you go. But now, on to the show. And we're going to start with Wham! Here's a trailer. Wham! Let's introduce the band. George, I'm Andrew. We had a number one album, we had a string of hit singles, and we were selling out arenas. How can the country be in love with these two idiots? We met when I was 11 and Andrew was 12. And there was only ever one thing that I wanted to do. Be in a band with George. Andrew changed my life in exactly the way someone needed to change my life if I was going to be a pop star. Wake me up. Before you review, view, don't leave me hanging on like a yo-yo. It works. Uh, <laughs> I tried really hard with that one. I don't know many Wham songs. And that's like the only one I know because it was a moon night. <laughs> was it? Of yes. course it was. And I'm yeah. one where he's driving the, the bloody cupcake van. I should have I should have known that you figured out a moon night connection in there somewhere. Uh, in, 1982, <laughs> in 1982, <laughs> the best of friends and still teenagers, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely as Wham! set out to conquer the world. By June of 1986, they played their very last gig at Wembley Stadium, having done 
exactly that. Their time in the spotlight was white hot, becoming the very first Western pop act to play in China. It was a time that both encapsulated and epitomized not just their youth, but also those of the many millions of fans that adored them. Wham! charts their incredible journey from school friends to superstars, and it was directed by Chris Smith. Like Clarice, I didn't know many Wham! songs going into this. Um, And I think that benefited my viewing of this film, because if you don't go in with a lot of knowledge, I feel like this is a really good starter for people like me going into this without knowing too much. They go through the entire story. um, You get the appeal of their songs and why they had their road to superstardom. What did you make of that Jenny Clarice as somebody who, like me, didn't go in with a lot of knowledge? Yeah, I would say it it did feel like it was pretty basic and mm-hmm. that if you are a Wham! fan, fan Wham! fan, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the main appeal would be being able to revisit the concert footage and there's a lot of audio interviews in this, which I thought was quite neat. Um, I will say, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I feel like this documentary started like very aggressively because there was no like introduction of who Wham are. Like, mm. what is Wham? What was the deal? <laughs> it was immediately like, we met and then we were banned and then suddenly we had Club Tropicana out and I was like barely like putting my coffee down next to me mm. when I swear the entire band had formed. And I was really mm. like, hold on, <laughs> let me settle into this. Um, but that might just have been my viewing experience. I feel like I could have done with a, a small intro or something, a little bit more like bookmarking on either end because it was very mm. like, here's the story. Ah! <laughs> Hannah, did you go into this with much Wham knowledge? And how did you find uh way they told the journey? Do you agree that it's basic or were you satisfied with what we got here? I know loads about Wham. Been on many of Wham songs have been on like a now. That's what I call music compilation oh, album. Wow, I haven't heard um, those sequence of words in a yeah. long time. <laughs> um, no, I knew a lot about Wham, um, because also I like George Michael. I think there was a documentary about George Michael previously that had come out after his death. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's an assumption on the audience that they kind of know who Wham is, um, and you know, this is a very safe documentary it's kind of a confirmation that these lads were best mates right I think the mm-hmm. problem is is that I suppose as I said Andrew Rid- Ridley was obviously very involved in it right mm-hmm. and he's the one who basically and I think in it wasn't as penetrating enough as I felt it could be because I maybe I'm just a cynical person but I just think the way that like Andrew just accepted like my best mate's going to go on doing all the writing, you know, it went from him being like the kind of organizer, getting the band together to suddenly being left aside. I mean, I'd love it. Maybe I'm just, I'm just being really single. I'd love it if it was the case that he was just such a good friend. It's like, oh yeah, Yog, let, let George do what he's got to do, blah, blah, blah. I think also the fact that George is dead, it's hard to like speak ill of the dead of one of the most beloved people. So I don't even know. I don't think he got into like, any of the potential tension there was between the two 
best friends or maybe they were just best friends i think i i think in my in, for me this was just you know it, even the bits about george michael wanting to be taken seriously the fact that he was closeted gay for many years of his life especially during wham you know he wouldn't have got that chinese gig <laughs> if he was open if, if they were open about it let's be let's be real about it so you know it's kind of if we're doing like a scale of like pop music documentaries i think it's like um like the least probing this would be one of them but you know it's still kind of fun mm. you know it was yeah. it was perfectly watchable but i certainly as someone who knows a lot about wham it didn't really tell me much although it did tell me that like andrew is part egyptian i was like yeah <laughs> mm. okay. i was like why i said that explains why he's so tanned all the time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, I did, watching this did make me think at times of Asif Kapadia and the way that he yeah. brings his documentaries together. This is another documentary that's composed of, ex of existing footage and voiceover commentary. What did you make of how it was put together, the way it was edited and the way in which those two things blend together, Clarice? I think it, it was edited in a way that felt like a good reflection of what Wham was, because it, it is quite a cheesy documentary. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like, pow, booty shorts, pow, people at clubs, pow. <laughs> like it's got that, that sort of energy to it, which... Hannah, as you said, it's not good if you want a, a genuine like investigation into what happened here and and why did this band split apart and was there any tension. But it's just like a nice little Netflix documentary to pay tribute to them. That's just a nice kind of pop. It's kind of, I guess, it's like the the pop version of the Asif Kapadia like documentary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of those things where when you have someone who's obviously very closely involved in the production of the film, giving maybe new interviews, I assume these interviews with George Michael were, I mean, I'd love to have known when those, because obviously we have George Michael's voiceover. Mm. I'd love to have known when those interviews were made, like taken, you know, recorded. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it does benefit a lot from archive footage and seeing them. And, and yeah, it's like perfectly likable. Um, easy viewing, which is a surprise from Netflix. <laughs> I will say this. I thought the scrapbook um, that was kept by Andrew Ridley's mother, that was a nice idea that they fed into the movie at various yeah. points. And I think that worked quite it's, well. I, this is the thing. It just touches on the little things of like, you know, even the kind of getting the record deal and not making any money. It's like, let's talk mm. about this. It's, mm. it, raises, it raises so many issues, but it's kind of like, let's not get into it. Mm. A film that I also thought of while watching this film, Al Yankovic, the Daniel Radcliffe sort of weird film. Al Yankovic, <laughs> yeah, because, weird the Al Yankovic story, yeah, because a lot. I mean, this does feel like a leaf through the milestones that you're going through the standard traits, if you will, um, and obviously that film mocked it, and I did sort of think of that at various points. Like this, it just feels like you are doing your due diligence and going to the basics without really probing and being more curious about some of the more emotional things that you're only touching on, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but it is on Netflix right now, and it's time for our stream or skip recommendations on Wham! Clarice, what say you? 
stream and i think i'm surprised no one's they they haven't done this as like a biopic right i feel like it'd be such a cute biopic it'd be yeah. a nice time nice friendship movie yes i agree with that uh, a lovely little bromance yeah <laughs> those are cute I, that's okay, the thing i don't know cast. whether it's real but you cast Ooh. so george is greek know. oh no let's not go into casting now because now he's a bit egyptian oh i need <laughs> yeah hannah are you streaming or are you skipping uh, i'll say stream uh, especially if you like i mean i love all those songs they're so good like he's a great songwriter george michael also, I love that whole thing about muscle shots, about how you basically went to muscle shots, like, nah. And then you suddenly get the... Like, that was really good. 17 sax hospitalists. Is it 10 or what was it? 10 sax players that they went through before they found the right one? Yeah. Mm. And that sax is just all-time yeah. great. My goodness. Yeah. Um, it's a stream for me as well. Solid film. A good starter course. But now I want the main thing. Um, hopefully... A filmmaker will come along and give us that in short order. From wham to bam! Bam, Nazis! It's time to talk indie in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. I'd love it if Indiana Jones actually said BAM Nazis every time I punch somebody. <laughs> Like it's a little catchphrase. <laughs> John Williams, is that you? Yeah, it's me. <laughs> Hi, it's me. Daredevil, archaeologist. Part-time teacher, Indiana Jones, races against part time. time. <laughs> <laughs> Very part-time. That's such, actually a really good line from uh, from. It really makes me giggle the way he delivers it. <laughs> I know. It's like, wait, you're a teacher. Part-time. Part-time. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he a robot in your version of it? <laughs> because that's how he says it there was a whole thing was it that red letter media where really? he says it differently in the trailer like he says it normally in the trailer but if you actually watch the movie he says it i so did and i don't remember it i don't remember it <laughs> so i remember it coming up and i was like waiting for it because it's actually my favorite line in crystal skull anyway sorry right that's good you have to rewatch it immediately afterwards so uh race against time to retrieve a legendary dial that can change the course of history Accompanied by his goddaughter, he soon finds himself squaring off against Jürgen Voller, a former Nazi who works for NASA. Directed by James Mangold and written by James Mangold, David Kep, Jez Butterworth and John Henry Butterworth, which says a lot. The film stars Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Antonio Banderas, John Reese davis <laughs> <laughs> Toby Jones, Boyd Holbrook, Ethan Isadore, and Mads Mickelson. 
Yes, uh, I was mad for mads. I got to speak to Mr. Mickelson about uh, this film and a few other films as well. The guy is a franchise king, as we all know. Harry Potter did that. James Bond did that. Indiana Jones did that. Marvel did that. Star Wars did that. Pixar kind of did that because he's done some Danish dubbing on a couple of Pixar films. So he's also done that. He's just, he's done everything. Um, and, and whatever universe Nicholas Winding Refn with all those movies <laughs> take place in. <laughs> of course, all of that pales to his incredible one-of-a-kind performance in Rihanna's Bitch Better Have My Money video, which we do talk about uh, very briefly in the course of this interview. It was a fun chat. He's very fun to talk to. And I hope you have a fun time listening to it. Here it is, me. And Mr. Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, welcome to the Faith Fight Podcast, Mads Mikkelsen. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Congratulations on adding another franchise to your ever-growing list. Yeah. Um, I know that you say that you don't get starstruck, mm-hmm. but I know that you've also said that Indiana Jones was a seminal film for you. Did you get a chance to discuss that with Harrison at all at any point? I'm sure we... Well, he's heard it a few times now. <laughs> yeah, but no, I don't get that starstruck. I do with people doing sports. I mean, I know what we're doing in our business. I know that we are professional liars. I know what it takes. <laughs> so it's a little different. Yeah. Uh, but I got a little starstruck because I was supposed to meet Harrison for a meeting, mm. go through some scenes the first time. Mm. And then he came out of his trailer uh, with his hat, the whip, the jacket, and yeah. then... And I never got to meet him. I just met Indiana Jones, and I'm a big fan of him. Yeah. Was that the moment that you first hit you that you're making an Indiana Jones film and you're in an Indiana Jones film, or were there others? And that's kind of like first day when we shot. Obviously, uh, we did the stuff that is in 1944. Mm. So there's a giant train, there's 500 extras, a lot of treasures going back and forth. Yeah. And then you could just feel the, the scale of, of this, of this yeah. monster. Yeah. I imagine you get sent a lot of scripts to play villains. What is the difference between a script that you pass on that doesn't earn your interest and one which does when it comes to, here's another villain script, Maz, take a look? If it's good. (laughs) (laughs) The simple simple answer here would be that I I would have said, thank you, yes, thank you for this one if I played a cat. Uh, I mean, I just Indiana Jones, you can't pass on it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So what was your way into Volo? Was there any particular thing that unlocked the portrayal for you? Well, it is predominantly the script. The story is in there, and, and we lean up against that, and we can obviously get inspired by other things. And there, we had a couple of real people in mind. So it's not a secret that uh, quite a few Germans went from there and worked for, for NASA, and other Germans went to work for the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, Werner von Braun was one of them. And uh, he was interesting to watch because he was just walking around there, uh, quite dandy in his clothes, and everybody forgotten about his past. He didn't even change his name. Mm-hmm. So we kind of got inspired of this dandy look of his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it shows on screen. You do like that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I know that you trained with a bodybuilder, Oliver Victors, yeah. for this role. Why did you feel the need to do that, first of all? And secondly, is that the biggest man you've ever seen up close? Because I saw oh, yeah. a picture of you two. Yeah. You're not a small guy, but you look tiny. Yeah, I'm tiny. <laughs> yeah. He's a big guy. No, we were just working out. Uh, I mean, you could go crazy if you don't work out for six, seven, eight months. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we were... I can't remember where we were. It was really warm. Um, yeah, we, we were working out, and I was just you know trying to get everything back to normal levels because he's just... <laughs> 
It's just use the machine. Right? And then we just took the opportunity to make a small guy pick that photo. Yeah, no, the size of his bicep is yeah, just this massive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Harrison has been doing the role for so long that he has made, and he's made decisions and he's, so he's sort of done stuff on instinct and made suggestions on instinct because he knows the character so well. Sure. Was there anything beyond the script uh, that you just did on instincts for Vola or suggested when you're on set? Mm, no, yeah, I think that once you, you you go down a path with a character, you it hopefully will become instinct eventually uh, that mm. you do certain things without questioning it. Uh, we added a little, uh, I added a little cowardness to the character, so that mm. means that in the situations where he's not complete top of the situation, he's a, he's a fairly big coward. <laughs> and then it swaps really fast if somebody has a gun, one of his henchmen, mm. and then he's, he's top, of the, top of the world. Mm. So yeah, that becomes an instinct. It's funny you said that because Harrison actually added in a fairly straightforward stunt something that was very Indiana Jonesy when mm. he knocks me out uh, mm. at a certain point in the beginning. Mm. And instead of just punching me, mm. you know, he's famous for punching, punching <laughs> Nazis. I'm aware. So he, um, f it, it doesn't really make sense, but it's really Indiana Jones fun. It, he mm. just, just before he punches me, he puts his hat in my face and then he punches me, <laughs> uh, which obviously made the stunt quite a bit uh, more difficult. But yeah. Um, yeah, that was an instinct from him and, then, and it suited the film really well. <laughs> I love that, I love that. Watching the film, I felt multiple times, man, it's great to see Harrison Ford get one last try. To, to the point where I forgot he's 80 years old and he's doing yeah. a lot of his stunts himself. Can you see yourself acting to that age and beyond? Maybe. Uh, I mean, it would be a miracle if I could get away with the stuff he's doing. I, he is it's quite impressive. I mean, mm. not only the stunts, we will shoot a full night and wrap at five in the morning and he will go out on his bike just for an hour, you know. Wow. So he's like, okay. <laughs> come on, Harrison, chill down. You now uh, nah, he's a specimen. He's a monster. He, and, mm. but, but I think he he loves his job, and mm. it reminds us all that that this is a special, unique, uh, privileged job to have. Mm. And you can just see in his eyes he becomes a little kid every time mm. he comes on the set. Yeah, I love that. Um, speaking of age, there's a de-aging process. You mentioned the 40s. That yeah. how, how did you find that, and how did you find seeing yourself on screen a little bit de-aged for, for a bit? I was very pleased because in the beginning there was talks about not de-aging me and just just dye my hair black. <laughs> and I was like, guys, <laughs> I just look like an old woman now. So I was hoping they would do something, and they did. Um, no, it was fun. It was fun to see. I mean, I, I was pleased to see how well it worked, especially on Harrison, because we all remember him in the first film, so there was no way we could get a different actor uh, mm. doing that as, as a younger version of him. So, yeah. so this technique was wonderful for this specific thing. thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And tech is really coming along leaps and bounds now. Uh, AI is a conversation that we are now having in this industry. What sure. is your perspective on that and the dangers of that and also maybe the benefits? What, what do you think? Well, I think the, we'll see the benefits here. I mean, this is, we use it as a tool. Mm -hmm. The base has to be people. I'm mm -hmm. sure the next few years, somebody will run with it and make a complete film as AI and also based on an AI script and so forth. Mm -hmm. That will obviously happen. Mm -hmm. But I think that people still want to watch people, people's decisions, people's instincts. Mm -hmm. So the base has to be that. And then, of course, if it's an, it's an aid in some, some way or another, fine, I'll welcome it. But if it takes mm -hmm. over, obviously. I'm not sure people want to watch that. 
yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I know you consider yourself a history buff. If yeah. the Dark of Destiny were a real thing and they gave it to you, where would you want to go in time? Where would you want to visit? We've had it a few times, obviously, that question. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of the other actors' answers um, I find super interesting. Go back mm-hmm. and see how, how they build the pyramids, mm-hmm. go to Angkor Wat mm-hmm. and so forth. But for me, it is Genghis Khan. I've always been mm-hmm. fascinated. And I found out that a lot of other people are fascinated with the character of Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm. And then I was just, that's, that's weird, because he did kill a lot of people. Right? <laughs> and he has this kind of like this coolness around him. So I have mm-hmm. to go back in time, talk to his PR people, because they did, they did a good job. Amazing. So if you were to be offered a Genghis Khan role in the future, yeah, it sounds Chico like something. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to some people. <clears throat> I'll talk strings. to your people. Perfect. We'll something out. Um, this is potentially the final Indiana Jones film. Mm. Knowing that, did you get to take anything from set? And is that something that you typically do on films? Uh, have it not been the final, I would have taken something. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, yeah, I always take a little souvenir, just sort okay. of thing. And, and so we all had our eyes on Indy's hat, but there was no go down. Like, <laughs> constantly three people watching that one. And, then, <clears throat> and you know what Harrison's going to do to you. If you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took my glasses. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good. I was looking through some of your other looks in preparation for this. Your fur coat in Chaos Walking. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. Did you get to keep that? No, and I don't <laughs> want it. <laughs> what? Why not? It's made, it's, it's made out of wolves. I, I, I'm not a big fan of killing beautiful wolves okay, to make okay. a coat. When you put it that way, but it looked amazing on you. Yeah. Um, I know that you got to keep some fake nails from Vienna from the bitch, but I have I my did, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where does that reside in the Mickelson household? I must know. Um, in the household, very high, because my son was not impressed about anything I've ever done until that moment. Uh, so, so that will uh, definitely lift the bar. <laughs> Have you crossed paths with Viana since? No, I haven't. Oh, I'm man. Watching it on TV, listening to her music. She, Have you heard that amazing. song since? And does it bring back memories? It, 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 does, it does pop up once in a while. Some of my mm. friends might just put it on when I'm there, just to remind me that I am. <laughs> that is fantastic. I love that so much. Um, you... I do a really good job of mixing up Hollywood blockbusters with indie cinema. And there's a conversation always happening in our industry about what the big films do to the little films and sort of the elimination of the mid-budget film. What's your yeah. perspective on that as somebody who plays in both worlds? Yeah, the, the middle-budget films, um, I don't know too much about because I come up from a country where it's small budget films. So I know the small ones and the big ones, right? So obviously if it hurts the middle ones, I'm, there has to be a conversation because they, they have historically shown to be a lot of fantastic art coming out of that kind of film where the director still is in complete control of, of his work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really bumped into it. I do my kind of small, very small things back mm-hmm. home and then I do <laughs> gigantic things over there. For me, it's kind of the same work. Uh, it's different universes. I say good morning to five people in, in Denmark <laughs> and then 500 in America. Right? So that's yeah. the difference. Yeah. Riders of Justice, by the way, we you love that film yeah. at Beta Black. It's good. so, so good. Which brings me to my, another question. Do you get to keep the Christmas sweater from that film? I'm sure I, they would give it to me if I want, but I didn't want it. <laughs> oh, again, why <laughs> not? <laughs> Did you see me? It's like, first of all, it's like that. And, and, <laughs> Yeah. So you look fantastic in it. I, we love okay. that film so, I'll so try much. to get my hands on it for you then. <laughs> Absolutely, please. Um, talking about the amount of franchises you've been in, 
Um, and I was doing some research. You've done the Danish voiceover for a couple of Pixar films. Is yeah. doing some non-dubbing voice work on a Pixar film still something on your to-do list? Or still something you want to do, or is that to, to dub? No, no, not not dub. The the sort of actual sort of proper voice of a of a character in a, in a Pixar film or in any anime any film. Is that oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is is an amazing, interesting thing. Obviously, when you do the Danish version, they're always done. So so that's mm. just kind of copying it. But when you do yeah. the American one, you play a part in shaping the characters, right? Yeah. So that that's a fun journey. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm here for it. Whatever you decide to take that journey, I'd be very excited. Uh, Star Wars is one of the franchises you're in. I actually got to speak to your brother not long ago, Lars, because he's about to do live action Thrawn. Uh, what right. conversations have you had with him about that and going from animation into live action finally? Now? He kept that secret for a long time because. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I was super thrilled when he told me. It's uh, I'm just so happy on his behalf. Yeah. Um, well, he knows that character really well because mm -hmm. he's he's been that voice for years now, right? Yeah. yeah. So I was there when they um, when they broke the news in London. Amazing. And I was just <laughs> listening to the crowd. They freaked out when they realized <laughs> that it was the actual voice. Yeah. that's now going to do the actual character. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I was there. I was one of the people freaking out because Good. I was like, oh, they showed the trailer with the back music. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing a lot more of that kind of live action. Do you watch Andor? Because it feeds directly into Vogue One, and the show is great. I'm wondering, I mean, you probably can't tell me if it's true, but season two of Andor, given that it feeds right into the start of Vogue One, have you heard any whispers about that? And, oh, whispers yeah. about bringing in Gail and Ursula? Yeah. I haven't heard anything, uh, and I haven't watched it. What? But I promise I will. <laughs> it's really, really good. Oh, good. Um, you mentioned earlier you're a big fan of sports, particularly tennis. Have you ever thought about doing a film which has that sport at the sort of, you know, basis of the plot, because I know... If it came my way, about. yeah. Mm. I have a hunch, though, that I would be, like, that middle-aged coach <laughs> and not the star <laughs> in the game. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, sports films, I love sports films as well, but I, mm. I'll, I'll rather, you know, watch the real deal. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I know that you're a big Federer fan. Yeah. I'm also a big Federer fan, so... We share that. <laughs> we share that. Um, final question for you. What a life! Uh, that track and the ending yeah. to another round. Do you have a special connection to that song now? And when, if you if you hear that playing again, do you feel compelled mm. to? Sure, yeah. sure, I do. I mean, that song became very special mm. to all of us, and it was a funny, interesting, actually, little roundup that I didn't know until my daughter saw the film, yeah. uh, and she said, the, "The lead song," she said. You, you know him, Dad. You, you, you realize you know him. And then it was a friend of hers when they were uh, teenagers. And I oh, wow. actually brought him home where he was uh, so drunk <laughs> a couple of times, <laughs> delivered it to his doorstep, his mom. Uh, and, so, and this film you know, is about teenagers and our age getting too drunk. So it was a funny spin-off, and all of a sudden he made that song. And they wow. and that that band just went like that back yeah. home after that film. <laughs> That's amazing. That was really one of my main notes coming out of Indiana Jones. It's, it's a good film. No, no mad dancing. No, no mad dancing. Violence of Justice. But Great do, film. Would you no like to dancing. see a Nazi dance? Uh, you make a good point. But yeah, Violence yeah. of Justice. Great film. No, no mad dancing. I mean, yeah. we're talking about the difference between a four star gotta, and a five star film. You gotta keep here. it for a rainy day. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see it again good. on screen, sir. So just bear that in mind next time you're set, Mads. Great talking to you. Such a Likewise. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Um, 
I, I suppose the biggest thing, we've had four films, obviously directed by Steven Spielberg. George Lucas was heavily involved in the previous films. This one, not so much. Uh, Clarice, does this feel like an Indiana Jones film? <laughs> not no not no but i mean i people have yelled at me on twitter on this already but i hadn't seen kingdom of the crystal skull i watched it this weekend that feels way more like an indiana jones movie to me than this does correct and for two key reasons i mean hannah do you want to talk about that because i know you were talking about the direction the other thing to me that I think I can talk to as the uh, the archaeologist in the room, <laughs> or the wannabe, I wanted to be an archaeologist long before I wanted to do any of what I'm doing uh, now. Um, well, I mean, no, it's just, it's the thing with the direction is there is something Steven, Steven Spielberg is a master director and a master has a clear vision of what it's going to look like. And with Indiana Jones, there is a playfulness. There's the way that shots are framed, the blocking. So that actually the whole kind of camera takes in a whole story and has like has a wittiness to it. And it's fun. Like when we go from the introduction of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where we don't actually see Indiana Jones for like quite a while. We see him go through the forest, see like the the kind of the indigenous people kind of trying to stop him. We see the hat first, you know, the way he uses shadows to kind of introduce Indiana Jones. Like, you know, it's so much fun, even all, all the way throughout. Um, and I think that's present even in, you know, Crystal Scars. I think even that opening sequence. With, oh, with um, the shadow on the car. That's yeah. so well done when yeah. you see the shadow come up against the car. Picks up the hat. And then the hand and the hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's very good at like, he knows exactly where you want to, where he wants you to look. And I think that's what's really great. And I just felt when I was watching this film, it didn't have that same clear vision and clear, um, like a uh, hallmark it had certain things that have been done we have a MacGuffin that's a magical artifact you know we have certain scenes we have Nazis there are things that it ticks boxes but for me this is kind of a bit of a drugstore Indiana Jones movie more than like a you know branded one <laughs> and I guess I wanted to then add like my thematic thing with Indiana Jones is that it's every single movie including Crystal Skull is about kind of what happens to you if you fuck with the power of like God, knowledge, and history. Um, and it's difficult because I kind of want to talk about spoilers, not talk about spoilers, sorry, I want to not talk about spoilers. Um, but there's, it's really kind of missing that sense of very intense hubris, which is what makes the other movies so fun and, and cool and gory and weird. And this one with the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character, Helena Shaw, she's introduced as this like black market dealer in antiquities who doesn't give a fuck about history. And I feel like if this were a proper Indiana Jones movie, she by the end of the movie would have like burst into flame or been eaten by ants or like melted or something. <laughs> like <laughs> there's no sense of hubris with her character. And because like they're obviously trying to create the Phoebe Waller Bridge archetype of like she's cocky and funny and she teaches uh Indy a few lessons like it should be the other way around he should have taught her a few lessons about fucking respecting history because that's what these movies are about I'm sorry everybody 
<laughs> Anyways, that's my rant over. <laughs> you can talk about the rest of the movie. That's just what really annoyed me because that to me is Indiana Jones and it's such a crucial ingredient and it kind of wasn't there. And a big thing of Indiana Jones is like the action sequences. Um, Amon, what was your thoughts on those, the delivery, the kind of scope of those set pieces? I enjoyed the action for the most part. Um, I thought the opening chase sequence on the train was especially good. <laughs> There's a lot of really good train sequences that I've seen lately. We will talk more about them. Oh, Hannah does not agree. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying agreeing. Yeah, God, okay. like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Trains never been so exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I enjoyed that. There's a car chase that also incorporates some horses that I think is done really, really well. So, yeah, when it's in action mode, I was having a good time. I just think that, for me, the middle section of this film dragged so much. It gets bogged down in tedious quests. The MacGuffin is here. We have to go here. None of the MacGuffin is here, so we have to go here. And that dragged the movie down for me. Yeah, I mean, even with this, I did have some fun with the fight action sequences. But, again, it's like you have a, a parade you're not doing anything with these parade balloons. <laughs> you know, that would have been really funny to me. Or even like the tuk-tuk chase sequence felt kind of repetitive. Again, I think trying to trying to like pay homage to the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it mm. didn't have a clear sense of what it wants to do. I didn't even say it's trying to, you know, kind of get pay homage to like Last Crusade as well, because obviously they have that very similar sort of kind of, I mean, beats, but... A lot um, of like vehicle chase yeah, sequences. Ve- as yeah, well. vehicular and drama. Very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, and you know, when I think about again, Crystal Skull, that whole sequence in the jungle with the ants and then the, the, the waterfall, like there's some really fun, unexpected moments in that. You're like, oh my God, this is happening. How are they going to get out of this? And I think that's a part of it. It's like, how does Indy get out of these situations? You know, I think we can all agree. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones through and through. And no matter mm-hmm. what, he will always bring it and he will always deliver. Uh, Clarice, Amon? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. There's no question. I mean, there's no doubt. I think because Indiana Jones is Harrison Ford, I feel like this is the character that is most similar to the actor. Because yeah. he just like wants to go home. And <laughs> Harrison Ford mm-hmm. in every interview has been like, I yeah, use the dial to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's. <laughs> I thought to myself multiple times watching this film, it feels really good that Harrison Ford is getting this opportunity to give this character a proper swan song. Um, and he's great. He's still got that glint in his eye. The charisma is still there. Um, and I really, really enjoyed his performance. And I also enjoyed this film as something that confronts and interrogates the idea of mortality and age. And this older action hero, where, 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 where is he in time? Where is he in history? All of that sort of stuff I thought was really, really good. And obviously we're not going to get into spoilers here, but I think the way in which they end the film to really sort of, you know, go into that conversation was really smart and audacious. And I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I didn't, to be honest. I just felt like it could have done, I think it was the, the way they, after the end of Crystal Skull, he's married to Marion. He's in this lovely house and then we meet him and like his life's gone to shit. And it's like, okay, hold on a second. I've got whiplash from this sudden change. I get understanding coming towards the end of it, but I I don't think it was established enough. It was, it, 
I think the the certain choices that they've made, it felt um, it, it underserved the character development and stories that have been already been established. I also felt that uh, again with like the Nazi element of it, you know, they use Operation Paperclip, which is a very famous his, real history historical fact of how the U.S. government, you know, brought over Nazi scientists to work on their projects. Um, and that's part of it. And then yet this film barely even uses that and get even gets into it. It's like, why why open up with some political, offer some political sort of intrigue and then not get into it? And it's like, oh, God, mm. can't be political. Can't be too political. Um, because obviously you don't want to, you know, can't be like, I'm going to go too much at the US. But it's like, they were kids like, yes, this shit happened. Boyd Holbrook, and the, so then the characters of Boyd Holbrook, who's basically in the same character they did in Logan, except for un, less work and underwritten. Um, even the CIA lady kind of, again, thrown in there. Lots of characters. Not It's always like there's so much going on, go, so much stuff going on, but not enough for actual good storytelling to warrant all the all the excess. Um, and then, um, you know, again, uh, I don't know. You want to jump? You wanted to say something, Amon? No, I was, I was going to agree in large part with what you were just saying. Um, Antonio Banderas is a character who's very much on the use. Seanette Renee Wilson as sort of this government CIA agent who's on Helena's trail, also underused. And yeah, I, I definitely wanted more from them. In terms of the Nazi villainy of it all, um, I thought, you know, Max Mikkelsen, he's played a lot of really great villains. This is not one of them, unfortunately. He's doing his thing, but he doesn't have the script to really make it into anything more than what we have seen before from this franchise. I did like the fact that, you know, the Nazis trying to turn back time to revive their fortunes, essentially. That feels very current. Uh, it's on the nose, but it works. But Mads Mikkelsen, as the sort of point man for this, we've seen better in this franchise. Mm. Um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier did it better. <laughs> Yeah. Sort of like that sort of operation paperclip sort of situation. Or a certain movie called The Suicide Squad, because that was all kind of an allusion to that. Mm-hmm. So Toby Jones in The Winter Soldier <laughs> and this film, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? Who am I? Zola. Wait, I just said it. I'm Zola. I was trying to be like Zola in the in the in the camera. Do you know that thing? You know in the film when he arrives into that bottom bit? You can't see it, radio people, but it's just me looking this very closely into the camera. podcast material. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it could have, could have been done better. So before we get into uh, my interview with James Mangold, um, which is quite relevant to talk about, let's talk about the kind of, uh, the, the global journey of Indiana Jones. Uh, similarly to Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Indy ends up in North Africa instead of, Egypt, really Tunisia, because that's where he shot it. Uh, it. They end up in Morocco. Um, and there we have this whole sequence, which feels, again, quite similar to the Raiders of Lost Ark kind of episode of him trying to escape from lots of people. Um, what do we think of that sort of kind of representation? And I don't know, do you think, you know, there's stereotypes in it, but like, did you think it did it was a bit less problematic than before? Yeah, I mean, that that whole sequence... It just felt a bit like, yeah, really retrograde because there's a character called Rahim, 
right who is like an old uh romantic acquaintance of helena's mm. and he comes along and then he like whips out uh a sword it's like it's a scimitar right the sword i can't remember what kind of sword yeah it was. he says a scimitar. it was like a curved sword. yeah basically yeah so he whips out a scimitar and he's like i'm gonna cut your head off which just feels like jesus <laughs> like that that feels like the kind of shit we would have seen in raiders of the lost ark which i thought we collectively had decided to not bring forward as a piece of nostalgia from the old indie movies um and this was a big reason why i kind of wasn't that excited for this because i love the indiana jones films i will be forever grateful for them introducing me to like history and this mm. lifelong love of mine but there's just so much about them and not just in terms of how they depict race. I think with gender as well, there's a lot of like really icky stuff because I think they were so consciously trying to replicate even older stories. And it's just kind of this like nostalgia, nostalgia upon nostalgia. And they haven't been smart enough to at each stage go, okay, what part do we want to modernize? <laughs> maybe not how we, maybe how we see other cultures and how we mm. see women. Maybe we should reflect a little bit more on that. And it's interesting here that, you know, we have the Helena character. So that part has been modernized very clearly, but not any representation of the places that they visit is just a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's the, icky. Yeah. It's interesting because I do quite like the, the Ted, the Teddy sidekick. Why he's called Teddy? I don't know. Like that he's, is... <laughs> he's like he's, he's Moroccan. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like what is it short for? <laughs> what is it short for? Yeah, and his surname's Kumar. Like I don't know. Um, and he loves American airplanes. Of course, he loves the West. <laughs> um, mm. But also, he's a he's a street rat. Riff raff, I don't buy that. <laughs> Basically, they just made him Aladdin. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and then as you said with the scimitar thing I'm going to chop off your head which is a something that was in the original Aladdin that they actually had to mm -hmm. make a complete to Disney and redo the dialogue do the song for Arabian Nights because it was that whole thing was like I'm going to chop off your hands because of oh, course yeah. all Arabs are barbarians who want to chop off things so yeah I mean again uh, <laughs> when we get into my interview with James Mangold uh, he does say that cultural consultants were not used <laughs> because um, I'll leave it to that. And mom, before we get into that interview, uh, any additional points you want to say on uh, the North African? <laughs> mm. And it's already kind of the kind of, I suppose, any uh, uh, non-Western characters <laughs> in the film. I will say this. Um, I did like Teddy for as much as that should never have been his actual name. Um, I liked his resourcefulness. I thought he had a good dynamic with Helena, with Helena. Um, and he was just a genuinely for the fun presence throughout. Um, so I thought they at least did a good job with that. In terms of the other uh, sort of people of color here, as I say, I I really liked Seanette Renee Wilson as this CIA agent, um, but I wanted more from that character especially given the people that she is, I guess, unwittingly working with, I wanted them to sort of interrogate that more and they don't do that, um, mm. which is a bit of a shame. And I feel like if you're going to cast someone who looks like that as that character, 
I wanted more from <laughs> from from what I wanted more than they ended up giving us. Um, maybe I will sort of elaborate that in hot takes. So it doesn't sound like I'm just talking around mm. it, which I clearly obviously am. But if you've watched the film, I feel like you know what I'm trying to say. Well, uh, so this is part two of our Indiana Jones interviews. I spoke to director and co-writer James Mangold. Um, started off well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but look, there's, uh, so we started off, uh, this is an interview where we had about 10 minutes and about halfway through we started talking, I asked a few things about North African representation and we'll probably get into this a bit more afterwards about the cast re- bringing back John Reese davis as Salah, an Egyptian char- character and fan favourite from the original franchise. You'll notice, I, you'll notice at the end of the interview, um, I get cut off. Um, but I feel like that's a talking point of what you do on junkets sometimes, uh, when questions, um, are maybe not, uh, the ones that they want to answer. Uh, so here is uh, my interview with James Mangold. Welcome to the Faith of Black podcast. Uh, James, can I just first just get it out of the way that, um, Logan is like my favorite superhero film. It's oh, that's so, so kind. Thank especially you. Logan Noir. I just remember ah. seeing that, um, and it's just beautiful. Um, uh, I know Mark Miller, and I think it's such a great adaptation of Old Man Logan, and he was, yeah. It's, so, well, it was a huge inspiration, his, yeah. his, that, that whole epic. Yeah, and that's where it ends for me and Wolverine. So, okay, got it. <laughs> we agree. You know. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's get into Indiana Jones. So I, I remember really there was just something that George Lucas said, and obviously this has been a long process, been through so many different iterations, scripts. And he said, um, I'm in the future and Steven's in the past. And I think that's an interesting thing about Indiana Jones, especially in a film like this, where it's about time, I suppose, timelessness. And, and so I suppose with that in mind, like when we're in 2023 making a movie like this, that's very nostalgic, but also kind of prescient. What was your motivation when you were kind of writing this script? Well, I was thinking about those very things because um, these movies are, as much as they're about the characters, they're also about a love of movies and they're carrying movie-making cinematic technique forward in many ways. But they're also so indebted and inspired by the past, as, as George was indicating about Stephen, although I'd say even George, too, is really, really inspired by the past. <laughs> um, the... He's, I understand his point because he's a bit more of a futurist and a, and a kind of entrepreneur of, of science and technology than I think Stephen is more of just a straight classical storyteller who uses all these elements to, to do his job, but he is kind of first and foremost a weaver of tales. And, um, but but uh, it was all in my mind. Um, and... and you know, as as I said, as much as Indiana Jones films are about the characters, they're also about a love of movies themselves. They're, you know, from the kind of the magnificent score to the staging of the sequences and the framing of the sequences, they're a kind of um, uh, exhibition of craft. Mm. Although it's funny because every time I listen to the score when it comes to um, Indy and Marion, I'm always like, John Williams, did he just repeat Leia and Han? <laughs> it's got that slight little similarities there. I was like, you know, you do. Well, it know. is the same guy. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you, Mozart it always sounds a little alike, <laughs> but the but the but it is but it is you know we can't help it us uh, us creative folk of 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 using um, and John certainly uh, many of his melodies have 
have, uh, uh, well, they all come from the same brain and the same yeah. pencil and the same piano. And, you know, Harrison Ford is the common denominator, so there we go. That He's is just, true. That's his romantic sound. Um, but actually, uh, l let's think a moment. I think he wrote Marion's theme before. that. You're talking about a theme that appears in Empire Strikes Back. Well, yeah, no, but isn't in... I don't think it's in, I don't think it's in episode four, as one might say now, but not in, in the 1977 Star oh, Wars. Oh, so he did Myron first. I think he wrote Marion's theme first. Oh, wow. I, it's a good, I, I, I would posit you're talking about, I believe, Star mm -hmm. Wars, then Raiders, mm -hmm. then Empire, I believe. Ah, Someone okay. can fact check us. Well, thank you so much. You, you got me on that one. Um, okay, so uh, I suppose, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of writers credited on it. I suppose, like, how, what was that, the key differences? You've said you aggressively, like, kind of redid the script with Jez and uh, uh Yeah, the John existing Hamm. script yeah. um, was written by David Kep, so that's why he gets a credit. And there were elements in it, the idea of starting in 1944 um, and the idea of Indy having a goddaughter, um, Helena, was in it. But that was pretty much where we kind of, it was, they were chasing a different relic, um, there was a different villain. There was a, um, and more so, the movie wasn't about what I really wanted it to be about. Um, it was just another adventure, but it didn't seem to be addressing the kind of the big uh, elephant in the room, as it were, mm. which is that our hero is almost eighty. Yeah, and you can't make a movie about a man at that age and not be somehow addressing that mm. as part of the story. Uh, um, you just reach this point. I mean, I know Hollywood is capable of taking 60-year-olds and making them look like 40-year-olds and act like 30-year-olds, but the, but the fact is that when you're almost 80, um, that kind of thing is just not going to happen. Mm. And what, what really has to happen is, is the opposite and kind of maybe even richer, which is to make a movie about being old. Yeah. And um, not just being old in, uh, oh, my back hurts or my knees pop, but being <laughs> old in the sense of that, you know, there's a lot of aspects to getting older, as it happens to me. I learn more and more about it, which is that the world changes around you. Yeah. It's not, you you know, I, I don't, I can't see me, so I'm always imagining I'm 24. But the, but the fact is the world's changed. Yeah. And, um, and... That's more of a reminder that what I was born from and came from and came of age in is gone. Mm. And that it was really interesting to me amidst the frolic and adventure of this film to somehow explore what it is to be a hero in Sunset in a time when the world may view you as obsolete, mm. which not only was interesting to me as a character departure point for him. Obviously, he finds his mojo and, um, as you can see in the trailer, seems to be putting the hat back on. And he's still got he's it. He's still got it. But the uh, but that that it was interesting to me in other ways, which is that it, it somehow, it said something about how we all have to kind of find our reason and, uh, and, and find our theme. Mm. You know, um, like Indy almost had lost his melody that John had written for him mm. uh, and and finds it again in the course of the movie. 
So um, I think you've said Raiders of the Lost Ark was a quite big inspiration, and certainly for me, who was half. Well, obviously, yeah, it's obviously, the first. I yeah, mean, I mean, it's, it's the first to. Indiana it, Jones movie. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I'm half Tunisian, so for me, uh, the fact that it was shot there in Egypt, Cairo is used for Kerouan and Tozada Desert. Um, can you tell me a little bit about? Um, yeah, because it was originally India going to Morocco. So can you tell me a little bit about kind of? Recreating it, because one thing I love about Indiana Jones, I love Indiana Jones, but there are some quite dodgy stereotypes that kind of come into it. So writing that, trying to get it right where it's not trying to be too offensive in certain ways, how is that process? Well, it's also particularly complicated because people are really endeared to the original films and they have those things embedded mm. in them. So you're trying to both carry on the legacy of something that people hold dear while also not continuing to offend as the earlier pictures might have, which is a bit of a double bind at times. Um, but the, Do but, you use consultants? Because you have historical consultants, but do you do cult have cultural consultants? Well, it's pretty, I mean, at least, no, I no. didn't. I mean, it's kind of obvious what you shouldn't do anymore. Um, and the, um, and we tried to steer clear of that. Uh, the, um, to the degree we inherited um, uh, characters and stories that had already been set in place, there was some things I couldn't address. But, but the other thing was also just addressing, in addressing Indy being out of time, addressing that he was slightly out of step mm. with being more culturally aware. Um, you know, at one point Phoebe calls him, you know, a professional grave robber and, you know, the, 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 the concept of what he had done viewed through the, a modernist lens um, changes. Mm. And yeah, it's like, wait, do we want to give these artifacts to a museum? Why is this white guy <laughs> jumping down here, grabbing these things and taking them to New York? And the I like that Helena is like Dr. Afra. Do you know the in the like the Star Wars character? Yes, I, she reminded me of Dr. Afra, which I quite like. But the but at the same time, mm -hmm. um, we understand Indy's impulse was shaped by the mm -hmm. times he was in and by love for these cultures and their brilliance. So, it's it's also. Uh, when it comes to kind of moments like that, I think we always have to be more aware or conscious about what we're doing. Well, with we that also, in mind, can I yeah, just ask about yeah, Salah? Because yeah. Salah, is that something you inherited? Because of course, of course, like there's a choice to bring someone back, and in where we are now, like bringing back a white actor to play and that character of color, but also an actor who said a few spicy things in his about past. in his in 2015 about Muslims and I'm like what was the decision there to actually bring him back in that role because obviously I just he's felt like a classic he was, he, I felt like I was bringing him back I was bringing Indy back to Raiders right um, that the the cast of the original film was what as as typified by Marion and John Ray Davies um, was what I was most interested in bringing back I mean, honestly, I think you could have gotten in trouble anywhere. Um, I mean, Temple of Doom, mm. everyone adores Short Round, but I found him kind of um, slightly... Yeah, but I suppose <laughs> the whitewashing of it is a little bit awkward. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, so, yes, that was uh, the interview. Uh, I don't think I got a very good answer on the uh, Salah return thing. I don't think he was quite prepared for that question, um, but there we have it. So we're going to get into spoilers now before we give our verdict. Um, and yeah, just if you haven't seen it yet or don't want to hear spoilers, fast forward.
to a hot take. Or... Don't look, shield your eyes. Don't look at it. <laughs> the crystal skull that is our podcast. Um, so yeah, so let's get into some spoilers. Um, Clarice, I'll go to you first. Just on, uh, I know there's a there's a big the ending, the final act that you were very disappointed that uh, about a decision that was made. Oh, they should have left him there. <laughs> He should have left him in. I think it's just a personal thing. He was so happy with Archimedes and he was the happiest he's ever been. And they should have just let him be there because he was going to die soon. So was Archimedes. He gets killed during the Siege of Syracuse. So just leave it. Well, let that I, man be. I, I totally agree. And certainly when you think about, so the point was that they go back, they overegg it and end up in, um, end up in ancient Syracuse at the time of this big battle that Harrison happened to be teaching. Wow, coincidence. Mm. Uh, love that. Love, love it when that happens. Um, but what I didn't understand, so it's established that Archimedes, when they find his grave in the cave, he's wearing the watch that was... Whose watch is it again? That is was... It, is it, is it, it Indy's? The... Or Zola's? Nazi man. Nazi yeah. the next so he's wearing the Nazi watch. So yeah. you kind of like they could have written it in as actually Indy was always supposed to go back in time because yeah. that's how it happened. And that would have been like a thing of like, oh wow, this is like fate. Like all the everything that he's done in his life is built to the point where he's supposed to go back in time to Archimedes. And get to that be would have been the been, place he yeah. lost the most. Yes, that like, would have been amazing. And then they were just really like, sweet. nah, let's bring him back. And it's like, whatever got it's like if he'd like Murray had left him or something like that, she would have understood. It's Indiana Jones. History comes first for him. Yeah, because they brought him back just to have a pointless cameo of uh, a pointless yeah, female yeah. lead who has been done so dirty by this franchise. She should have been co-lead. If yeah, they, I, especially I after Christmas Skull now, I'm furious because she was actually in that movie and I she loved was it. great in that film and I loved it. Yeah. So they did. That's what I mean when they undid all the work. So they got to this point where they're actually together and then they start. It's like, oh, let's fuck her off. Um, yeah. I mean, I and get also, why they killed off Mutt. But... but they didn't even have to do that because s- children can just be away. They don't have to be dead. <laughs> they could have just been like, Mutt's at college. We're not going to hear from him. Well, this right? is, yeah. Well, interestingly <laughs> enough, like, I always, I find it like if they killed him off because Shia LaBeouf is problematic. Once again, I ask, why the fuck are you bringing back Shia Salah <laughs> when... Yeah. He and it's very recent, like what some of the stuff that he's said, very problematic, really anti Muslim Arab sentiment, really. So there we go. This was, it seems odd. And also, his kids, he was clearly wearing fake tan, and his grandkids were so much darker than him. It's like, what is this white man doing? With the death of Mutt, I'm not unopposed to that, but I feel like they need to make that a lot more prevalent in Indy's arc and in the arc of this film. When it's said, it's like two-thirds of the way into the movie and it's just a thing that said there's not really any follow-up to it. It's just like new information that is given. I want to know more about how that book ran apart and I don't want to know by Indy telling me I want it, I want it to be shown to me. And I feel like that is just one of the things in which they do in this film, which is very much tell, not show. And I feel, I, 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 it's, 
the ending still sort of works for me because I like that they, I do like that they bring him back. I do like what that means for me. And I do like that final line in the, are you back? And then the response, I thought that was really well done. But in order to have made that hit even harder, I would have liked there to have been more made of the fact that Mutt is now dead in this actual film. It just feels like information that's just, okay, that's said and we're moving on to the next thing. It now. was very um in the was the one in The Simpsons where he's like, he died on his way back to his home planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. this is what I mean. It was it I didn't feel like I was on the journey with Indiana Jones. Hmm. I feel like a lot of journey had happened in the fifteen years <laughs> hmm. that we weren't privy to and it and it felt like that is too much information that we didn't have. Mm. and not even and I, even again like I, I re-watched Crystal Skull and I actually think it's a real superior film to Dark Destiny because it felt intimate in a way that this one didn't I get they're talking about age and all that but I just don't like you know <laughs> they made all the old jokes in the last film literally all the way through Mutt's like okay old timer old man it's like and he was mm. only what 60 <laughs> so it's kind of hard to talk about like age and retirement when they've already kind of Trod on that. Hmm. Clarice, something you were saying earlier really, really intrigued me and in what you think the fate of Helena should have been. Because we discussed oh, she this... should have been hit by one of those Archimedes death rays, you know, the concave mirrors, <laughs> yeah. and she should have burst into flame. That's what should have happened. Because we, we discussed this a little bit in our WhatsApp group after the film in terms of Helena as a character. Because she was right on the edge for me in terms of someone who was annoying and someone who was also had moments of likability. There's a point in the film where Antonio Banderas dies. And by the way, I man only had six minutes of screen time, barely gets anything to do, and then is killed off. Didn't really they like could that. have just picked any Spanish man. It did not have to be Antonio <laughs> Banderas. But like... Indy is like, I've just lost my friend. And Marin also, and Helena is almost like, but we're one step closer to the monies though. Like she is very, you know, all about the money in this film to a degree that at times I found a little bit irritating. No, I like that though. I don't mind that. I just think she just should have been more, but there should have been more of like, a, she should have learned some lessons. This is why I go, and look, this is why I keep banging on about Dr. Afra. Because clearly this is a character I think that was inspired by Dr. Afra. Because Mangold knew who Dr. Afra was. And I feel mm-hmm. like the way she is, she's got like, she's all about, she, I just think it was bad. The writing didn't sell her enough. That's what I'm saying. I think the character is a good character in that she knows shit loads about history. She does respect history, but she's also kind of not playing into this idea of like, history belongs in the museum. I'm out to get things, you know you know, for myself, she's had, she got, you know, she got orphaned, her dad died and she was kind of like having to fight for herself. You know, that whole storyline is kind of like Dr. Afra where she had a dad who kind of was inspired by, she was inspired by, and then he got killed. And so she's like, you know, skirting between like Darth Vader and and the, the resistance and stuff. And so she, but then she also comes, always comes through at the end as like, I'm the good, like, I I know what's good. I'll try and save for life if I can. So you can kind of, that's what's like, that's what's like unlikable, but likable about her. Whereas in this one, I just don't think that the writing or the performance was quite there to have you feeling like, oh, she's a rapscallion, 
but we love her. You know what I mean? A lovable rogue. Mm. But she didn't, she, that didn't come across. And mm. she didn't have that moment that you're talking about where, well, it, kind of, but it wasn't clear in the writing because in those sorts of characters, there's always that, uh, you know, where they could have left the situation and they could have gone out for themselves and they have that moment of, oh no, I'm going to do the right thing right now. There isn't really that massive moment for her. So I think that's, I'm kind of joking when I said she should have died, but that's me referring to the sense that there is no, there's no real turning point for her. And that's coupled with the fact that I feel like, if I keep it, Mads Mikkelsen, bad Nazi man, I mean, all Mm. Nazis are bad, Nazi man, also has a really boring death and he should have blown up. I can't or, even yeah, remember how he died. How did he die? The plane just crashes. Oh, yeah. He should have melted. He should have been on fire. He should. I should have said <laughs> bones. Like, this is the thing as well. The indie movies are so gory. Mm. And I like that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is quite gory with that ant thing. It's horrible. This one didn't have anything like that. And it's like, that's such an essential ingredient to me is I want to see the Nazi not only has to die, but in just a horrific... He should have got an arrow, like got taken out of the plane because it hits yes. so far and, like, and it goes out. Yeah, and then like a big sea monster comes and eats him. Like just something like, where you're like, yeah. Please, when I think about some of the other stuff that you said to me over the last couple of weeks, you do scare me sometimes. <laughs> I'm just, this is, I'm not saying that. This is literally what happens. If you yeah, think of no, every other single yeah, villain... No, no. And also anyone in those movies who is ever like selfish and wants things for themselves, they also get punished, maybe in less horrific ways. But this is me. I think this is that's just because those are that's what an Indiana Jones movie is to me. That's what I've picked up on watching these four films and to not see it in this one is just like, Mm. oh, like you can't not notice like there's a missing ingredient. And I think one of the big things is like, the way Helena, I understand the motive, again, if we go back to Dr. Fett, it's like, there's a reason why Helena is this, like, she serves herself rather than serves mm. the greater good because she's basically every single person that she's known in her life has let her down. Therefore, why should I trust anyone when no one's, like, been there for me? Therefore, I have to, like, do my, be a selfish person. But that isn't really explored in, in the film. And you would have had, understand her a little bit more why she's quite selfish and self-involved if they played that. But I think... Again, there's too much of an assumption on the audience to just get that from the character rather than, you know, have those actual emotional beats. And I think that's what it lacked. That it's, it's the intimacy, isn't it? It's not an intimate movie. That's why I think that the dynamic between Teddy and Helena, every time I say the name Teddy, it just gets more and more ludicrous. Um, but the, 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 the dynamic between Teddy and Helena is so important because that's the one person that Helena does care about all the way through and you can tell and it comes through. Um, mm. So that at least there's that. Uh, uh, Chris, I, I sort of agree with what you're saying in terms of there's no big turning point for her, but I do think that her insistence that Indy come home, that's what the big turning point is meant to be to some degree, right? Yeah, but that's just selfish because she wants him back because it's her. Well, her, she's, her she, she makes a point. She makes a point that you know, <laughs> if, if if he stays there, it's going to ruin history. Like she says that over and over again. In that, moment. what's the evidence, Helena? <laughs> Literally, uh, he was about to die. They have already crashed a Nazi plane into Syracuse. 
<laughs> like the the timeline has been muddled as much as it was going to be muddled. One and old all, guy yeah. who knows enough about Syracuse that he would not have trouble blending in for the thirty five minutes he had left to live <laughs> is not going to change. That's what pissed me off. Leave yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, I agree. If we ever go back in time and I say I want to stay, let me stay. Don't drag me back. Chris, we need you, you for the Fate of Black podcast. No. Wow. <laughs> if I could go back to ancient Greek times and die there, I'd be like, hell yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, we've got I think we've I think we've said all we need to say about <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh so let's give our verdicts. Is it a Green, stream, or skip a mon? It's a stream for me. I had a decent enough time. Nowhere near the best of the franchise, but a nice swan song for Harrison Ford. Stream. Clarice? Yeah, stream for Harrison. Because, like, mm. it's still in, like, he's still indie. And yeah. that always yeah. makes me happy. Stream for indie. <laughs> Please. Shokhan, s'il vous plaît. Gracias. <laughs> And the Indiana Jones chat is not done. It's about to continue in our hot take. Oh my gosh. Very nice. Very nicely done. Um, yeah, as we teed up at the start of the pod, we're talking about Hollywood bringing back fan favorites when they should and when they should not. Um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny brings back a fan favorite. I was actually, obviously, in the multimedia screening for this. When Salah turned up, there were cheers and there were claps. Clarice, Hannah, were you among the cheerers and the clappers? No, I booed. No. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even put, like, Hannah, I'll let you talk about the white watching stuff, but even putting that aside for a second, like, he's the really out of all the indiana jones characters it's the guy who's just like there in raiders who yeah. doesn't really do anything like short round i would understand because short round is fucking cool like i just don't understand like this propulsion to bring back this or this just feeling that you have to bring back this character because the fans are, are craving for it and it's like i've never seen people talk about this guy before he appeared in this movie like i know him mostly because he does the safety instructions on the indiana jones ride outside of that i have no affection for him as a character that's it's just, it's just like you. what especially given the resurgence of ki hui kwan it would have not only been the logical choice but just a better choice in every respect like i yeah. would have not cheered not james would... mangold he was like <laughs> That's when I was like, it's like, well, you know, I, you know, you could say if you brought short round back, that I think that's appropriate problematic. And I was like, well, it's not why. No, because you bring him back to fix how chiddily he was represented in Temple of Doom. Because the, yeah, obviously he he was a really cute kid. And I would like to see the adult version who's gone on to live a cool and successful life, despite Mm. all the shit that happened to him. I would have cheered and clapped if Ki Hui Kwan showed up. That is for sure. Um, I thought I would have been great to have him back. Mm-hmm. I just, my personal thing, I like Salah as a character because one of the few, 
like Arab North African characters. That's a good character. That's not playing to ridiculous, crazy stereotypes. That's set for that fucking fez. <laughs> um, so I don't mind the character in an Indiana Jones movie from the 70s and the 80s, whatever. Like, fine, I'll allow it then. But like, it is, you cannot be bringing a character like that. You cannot be allowing whitewashing at all anymore. Um, especially in a, in a role, and even what they did to the character. I, th- this is the irony of it. The character Salah, he comes back, he's now living in America. So, so he's like been helped get over there. One of the things that John Reese Davis was complaining about was like the, the fact that Western civilization was being like infiltrated by Islamic, Islamic culture. And that actually like by 2022, by 2020, 50% of young children under 18 in Holland are going to be Muslims. So it's like, it's wild to me that this actor is playing this character who is doing, playing a character who, if he met in real life, would despise and think is a threat to Western society. So, you know, that is insane. Um, But again, it's not the only fan favorite that got brought back in this. So yeah, so fuck, do not bring a character back if it's whitewashing or the the actor has said something really fucking awful. Because that's my belief. You know, mm. I know that with Charles Booth, I'm not, I'm not saying he's a fan favorite, but I will say is that actually the decision not to bring Mark back was made prior to any of the kind of real allegations that came out against Charles Booth. I think that was mm. one of the early decisions, one of David Kep's scripts rather than anything else. I guess maybe because I didn't think he played that well in The mm. Crystal Skull. Well, cause, yeah, because everybody hated the movie. So they, that, I think mm. that's why But it's insane because it's actually a very good correct. film. Yeah, yeah. So they were like, yeah. let's not do that. But with Marion, and, you know, I think you can speak to this as well, Clarice, it's like, that's a good fan favourite, but that they fumbled the bag. Well, the, the reason that I actually never saw Kingdom of Crystal Skull when it came out is that I read that they got married at the end, and it sort of pissed me off because I loved Marion so much. Like, I think she was one of my first kind of exposures to, like, a you know like a a tough woman who's like kicking ass and is cool and is drinking everybody under the table um and i had always thought god she's just too good for indy because there's that whole really creepy thing that they met when she was basically a child right yeah she was like 15 yeah (laughs) they started romantic i think they're romantically involved and he's 10 years older than her yeah so it's like already it's like a really fucked up relationship so i think in my head i was like yeah and then she realized the error of her ways and was like fuck you indiana jones and went off and lived an incredible life (laughs) and so i was already pissed off that they brought her back in the first place but i will say watching kingdom of the crystal skull the fact that she has a genuine role in that film and she is a part of the action, she is a part of the drama, she's part of the decision history, maker. she's part of the actual plot, she's part of the decision maker, she's active, she's bickering with Indy, there's beautiful chemistry between the two of them. I'm, I actually probably should have watched it when it came out in theatres because I, I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. liked the two of them. And so I think now to see Dial of Destiny... And I literally told somebody before the movie, it's like, I bet Marion is going to have left him again and they're going to show like a newspaper clip. And then it's literally what happened. It's it's like a photo to be like, she's left me. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's so dull and it's so predictable because they keep doing this with like the legacy sequels is that the female lead is like mysteriously vanished. Oh, but it's exactly the same as Leia and Han, isn't it? (gasps) 
the yeah. kid, somebody else was to the kid and they kind of decide to like separate disappears and at least Leia I will say you know had a much more active role in those movies and would have you know sadly if Carrie um didn't pass away because she was going to be a huge part of the third one um but this happens again and again and again when they do these where everyone's older the woman just oops Mm. she left she divorced me she went off which is such a basic plot storytelling device used yeah and it's like oh they're happy at the end let's split them up again because we need drama because that's what it's got to be it's so boring and also i think a shitty excuse to be ageist against these actresses because they think that they can't be on the face on the poster and karen allen is fucking gorgeous and she was glowing in that and she's younger than indiana jones (laughs) yeah yeah and there was absolutely no reason she could not have been in that movie running around and doing Yeah. Instead of Phoebe Waller Bridge, who I love, she did not need to be in that movie. It should have been Karen. Yeah, I agree. Rant over. (laughs) I think what some of this comes down to is nostalgia. Um, They love to spin that wheel in Hollywood. And I feel like the best times when a fan favorite has been brought back for a film is when it's about more than just nostalgia, when they have an actual. proper role in it like i think even one of the best recent ones was han in the force awakens um a real role a real pivotal moment the relationship between him and kylo ren all of that stuff was really really good and it justified bringing that character back are there any positive examples of hollywood bringing back fan favorites that you can think of well, Die Destiny is a real Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> you know what I mean? In terms of like, okay, we're just going to do what we think, like a paint-by-numbers sort of, what we think of Star Wars films that the fans are going to like, rather than thinking, let's tell an actually decent story. That feels... Uh, um, is Crystal Skull the last Jedi? <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly don't... I remember seeing Crystal Skull and thinking, this is great. And I really do. And I was, tw- what, I was 20 when it came out. So this is like when I was at university, like just second, maybe second or third year. So I was like, I don't really, so I kind of like, wasn't really embedded. I wasn't, you know, talking about film on social media or anything like that. So I don't, God, what was it? It was like just when Twitter was starting. So like, I missed all the kind of drama about Crystal Skull being bad. I just knew I really enjoyed it. So, and I also had a Charlotte Booth crush. So, <laughs> um, who do, fan favorites come back? But this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of like, you know, bringing back talk about hans let's talk about han in like fast and furious franchise mm. i kind of like bringing him back but and i think they did it in a way that kind of it's very convoluted <laughs> but it's like okay cool and i think he's a cool fa- cool face to bring back and i don't mind that because i think he was he was a great character in tokyo drift um he was good in the uh, subsequent films that he came the ones that because uh, the timeline's so messy in fast and furious mm. so i really enjoy him as a character um this is very interesting to me because I don't mind that they brought him back when you know that hashtag was trending um in advance of what fast film was it that he came back in? Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> in advance of whatever fast and furious film he came back in, I was as excited as anyone. But I don't think the explanation to his return was satisfactory. And thinking if he's done anything substantial or of note since he's come back, I'm coming up empty. 
And that, for me, is part of the sort of issue of what we're talking about here in terms of bringing back fan favorites. You have to make it meaningful. You have to have it be crucial to the plot. And honestly, I, instead of, have, instead of having another Hobbes film, if I could have a film centered on Han to give him the time to actually, you know, do something of note and explain, not explain, but justify more why they brought him back and why he's a fan favorite and all of these things, give him a Han film or at least have him do more than what he's been asked to do in his subsequent well, Fast and Furious films. Michelle Rodriguez. Been... She was a good comeback for the Fast franchise because she actually proved to be like a... Yes. That, that was a very with. good one. Well That's done. a good example. But for me, Han, he has done little, if anything, since his return. And that's a bummer for me. Actually, he's done a lot. He's eaten lots of snacks. <laughs> he's very good at eating snacks. That is very true. It's interesting to me because I always, whenever I think about someone eating snacks, I always think about like Brad Pitt in Ocean's franchise. Yeah, he's yeah. always snacking. That's mm-hmm. his whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, I think, Red Skull in uh, Infinity War Part 1? That was a good fan. I mean, I know if he's a favorite, but like mm-hmm. bringing someone back in a way that was like shocking, surprising, mm-hmm. had a purpose to play. Right. But actually kind of, I thought that was well done. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Can I, my favorite, I think the best one is Max Rokotansky. That's his name, right? In Fury Road. Oh, yeah. I think that's the best version because it's 100% not nostalgia because it's not the same actor for good reasons. Mm. (laughs) And it's using like this mythology of the character archetype to tell a completely new like really amazing original story like i thought that was so i don't know i think that was so such a cool decision on his part to go Mm. yeah we're gonna have max back but he's tom hardy now and actually the movie's about furiosa so yeah uh, Mm. suck it (laughs) (laughs) that's a very good shout i like that one uh any more for any more i think sometimes it's interesting when it's kind of is it a fan favorite from the, the films or the TV shows or from the comic books. I think Black Chrysanthemum mm. was a really great addition. Mm. I know we didn't like Book of Boba. I know Book of Boba Fett not many people loved, mm. but I enjoyed that part of it. I like it when we get those characters in there. Mm. But, you know, like I'd say one of the worst ones was in The Mandalorian bringing back Luke Skywalker. For me, that was just, no. I don't mm. think we needed Luke. I think you could have just done it with Ahsoka. Mm. Mm, that's interesting because I kind of like the return of Luke. <laughs> uh, the that, one that scene, scene, maybe that scene where he comes back to sort of uh, take out all the bots and take uh, Grogu into his custody um, was really, really cool. I, I enjoyed that a lot. I just it's things like that when I see that I just feel like it's a good enough story. Like these are good enough storytellers and writers and actors. And this show is good enough that it doesn't need Luke Skywalker. Like you, Mm. like, that's what I mean. It's like, I feel sometimes when they throw kind of these like classic film characters into it, that they're, they're um, not trusting themselves. It's kind of an insecure move of Mm. like, God, we better put that in. Then people are going to talk about it. It's like, yeah, we're going to get people on side. It's like, just believe in your believe in yourself and believe in your motivations because what's very clear when you look at the wider canon of Star Wars and stuff, there are so many Jedi's, there are so many people who escaped and all these things, or you can invent mm-hmm. things like, and people will love them. And what's I think what we should always be striving for 
if you're going to do a legacy sequel, let's create new fan favorites. Let's mm-hmm. create new ones. And I just don't know if Indiana Jones, if we'll talk about that, I don't think there's yeah. been, there. I don't think anyone's going to come away like, oh, that's my new favorite Indiana Jones character from that mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Agreed. That's a lovely that... note to end on. But Clarice is okay. not blowing me. No, to do it. we're. Clarice <laughs> is going to give us a very awkward, hilarious note to end on. Okay, go for it, Clarice. That said, I saw earlier this morning that Amelia Clark dodged a question about Kira coming back. And I that's a fan favorite return that would fan service me specifically. Please bring her back. <laughs> you know what? That was Clarice. That was a lovely, awkward note to end on. Um, because that is it. Thank you. <laughs> for this week's Fade to Back podcast. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is the safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast because it makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. I am at Amon Woman on Instagram and Twitter. And by the way, um, if you have not yet already seen we dropped a bonus episode on friday of me talking to a couple of the people from the witcher anya chalotra and freya allen it's a really really fun chat and it's also a really really fun season of television that's streaming on netflix now i highly recommend it both the interview and the show i also really enjoyed the new season of the witcher uh, and I am at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I'm at Hannah and S. Flint on Instagram. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Ah, ah, <laughs>